This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3106 for Monday the 29th of June 2020. Today's show is entitled Linux in Laws Season 1 Episode 9 Postgres and is part of the series Linux in Laws. It is hosted by Monochrome and is about 64 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is The lads talk to Bruce Momji and Postgres Evangelist. This episode of HPR is brought to you by Archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. This is Linux in Laws, Season 1, Episode 9. Postgres. As long-time listeners will know, Linux in Laws is marked as explicit on most portals which rip off Hacker Public Radio, as episodes may contain graphic and strong language, and may depict subjects including violence, drug abuse, nudity, such as the ultimate rule of free and open source software, addictive operating systems, and naked databases. This episode is no exception. As a matter of fact, Listener's discretion is absolutely advised as you may encounter shocking facts about databases in general, both SQL and NoSQL, Postgres in particular, and ancient history going back to 1986. Never mind bitching about MySQL. Faint-hearted listeners are advised to skip this episode. You have been warned. Due to technical challenges during the interview from an audio perspective, the sound quality of the recording may not be up to the high standards you can expect from Linux and Laws. We would like to apologize for the circumstance and shift the blame squarely to Verizon and its rotten choice of crappy router hardware not playing nice with free and open source software like Big Blue Button. Good morning, Martin. How are things? Good morning, Chris. I'm well. How are you? Can't complain. Breakfast episode coming up. Yeah, another exactly another day, another episode. But before we get to the most important interview guest, let's do some news. Um, something I came across recently. Um, apparently, Mint has decided to do away with snaps. In terms of, if you want to install Chrome, it tells you that sorry, can't do this because this is only available as a snap from Ubuntu, which is the underlying distro. Um, so if you want to install it, you have to do this manually, I'm afraid. Um, what do you make of this? It doesn't sound very user-friendly for a, a operating system that claims to be more user-friendly than Ubuntu. Maybe we should get Richard Stallman on the case. What do you think? It's, it might be worth doing. I mean, do you actually know anybody who uses Mint, personally? Yes, I do. You talk okay, to one of okay. You talk to one of them. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. 
I, you see, I have a, I have a, I have a zoo. I have a zoo of virtual machines. Zoo. Okay. Um, that I just use to show various people how great Linux is, and one of them, of course, runs Mint. Of course. Okay. Um, because the beauty about Mint is actually the the installation is is a breeze. Because essentially, you put an ISO on a stick, you put the stick into a computer, you boot this up. And then Mint does pretty much all the rest, including automatic partitioning and the whole shebang. So it also comes with um, quite a few non-free packages in terms of, for example, multimedia codecs, which are which normally are not bundled with the distro because you have to install this separately because of, for example, different licensing. Yeah, when you when you say non-free, do we uh, do we mean? Non-free and open source. What are we uh, sometimes dual license, sometimes even closed source. It really depends on the implementation. So Mint is, is somewhat of a hybrid. Let's put it this way: it's not a pure open source system. Hmm. Um, but maybe um, the commu the Mint community maybe thinks different do, about do, this. Okay. Do you know what the uptake is of of, of Mint in terms? I of do not know. There's a there's a website called DistroWatch, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, let's yes. let's see. But the crack is, um, if I can find this, it's just typically yeah. Either people go to Ubuntu, uh, sorry, or to go to a Linux. <laughs> um, I have no, I haven't personally heard anybody saying, "Oh, I'm gonna run Mint um, from now on." It's on position number three, mm. at least according to DistroWatch.com. First, first two positions, first two positions are <laughs> MX Linux. Never heard about this. And of course, and interestingly enough, Manja yeah, Manjaro, which is an arch spin. Well, this is okay. What is this page hit ranking? Okay. And okay. yes, and position number four is Ubuntu, and then Debian. Um, perhaps not 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 the right me metric is it to be using here. well this is distro watch right make what you well, av make of it what you want average average number of hits per day that's kind of yeah okay hits per day yes it's uh hmm. whatever that means well it means that you can have as many bots running as you want to, to <laughs> increase this number that's good that's probably how Apex Linux, which I never, which I've never heard about, got through rank number one. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, I think this is also a practice that some other, um, uh, well, <laughs> so software manufacturers use. But, um, mm. uh, oh, but I mean, good, eh? yeah, but I mean, Manjaro is pretty cool. Have you ever used it? No, no, my, my, um, uh, I, I, I'm not. Uh, Personal zookeeper like you. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. The, pe the pets that are of use to me. <laughs> uh, no, Manjaro. It's it's quite interesting because it's essentially arch, or it aims to be at uh, at, at people that like arch but without the pain. No, um, so it comes with a graphical installer. Comes with a pre I think even with with a pre-installed desktop. Something that a pure arch user would have to do all manually, or use a Mesa package or something like this. Um, uh, based on their preferences. I mean, if you install Arch, there's a net install, and that gives you just a bare-bone user land that doesn't even have a compiler, uh, just enough to boot up the system, and then the real fun starts mm. in terms of configuring the network, configuring the desktop, and all the rest of it. Um, and Manjari takes the other approach in terms of... Um, I'm almost tempted to say it's similar to what Mint is for Ubuntu is Manjaro for Arch, but I wouldn't right. go that far. Um, because as far as I know, Manjaro doesn't, for example, include um, kind of multimedia codecs right away. Uh, but then I've never, I think I only installed it once just for a couple of, of hours to, just to play with it. But then, of course, being the Arch purist that I am, I said, no, this is not for me. So... But quite a few people use it, and the and the project is quite active. Talk okay. to num talk to a number of the, of the community. Talk to a number of the members of the community at various open source um, events when they were still around, as in physical ones, not this mm -hmm. virtual nonsense crap. Well, you can still uh, talk to them even on a virtual one. You know. Yes, <laughs> uh, but what's the point? Um, okay. Uh, well, conversation. <laughs> yes, but. <laughs> Yes, but uh, that's all. Th I mean, the social aspect is totally missing there. Um, you mean so the beer? 
No, the social aspect, as in the the body language, the face, uh. the facial stuff, and all the rest of it that makes human interaction so very important. Uh, I'm just, just 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 for our listeners, um, Chris is quite an animated speaker. So. <laughs> thank you, so, Mr. So, so, thank so, thank so, you, so Mr. Make, make sure you you stand well back. <laughs> I see. Anything else that our listeners should know about me, Martin? All will be revealed in due course. No I see. Okay, enough ranting about Mint and and, uh, and well, actually, um, and of course the implication is that this restricts a certain level of freedom when it comes to the software. Yep. Uh, need, needless to say, links will be in the show notes, so feel free to um, check this out yourself and make up your own mind. Essentially, needless to say, if you have opinions about this, there's this magical email address called feedback at linuxinlaws.eu. Uh, yeah, and likewise, if you if you are a Mint user, uh, please do also do get in touch. Uh, with indeed, indeed, indeed. Someone in the world. Exactly. And if you want to do a full episode of Manjaro or Mint, for that matter, mm. we welcome we do welcome guests. Excellent. So, is there anything else we should talk about um, before we should get on our guests? Speaking of which. Yeah, no, I, I was just going to um, mention a piece of news that I that struck me this week, which uh, is ties into our uh, open source uh, technology as well. Um, but and also slightly related to our guest in terms of um, it, it's been a long-standing uh, open source uh, project member, uh, coordinator, um, contributor, but. Um, Yes, yeah, so open source can be used quite badly as well, right? It's it doesn't give you any guarantees to um, make a, a secure system, as we know. And um, there was yet another uh, breach in the UK, uh, this time on the health um, system, which um, is happily sharing uh, recordings of private consultations with um, amongst their users. So being able to see other people's um, <laughs> video recordings of their health consultations with their doctors, so, um, and the fact is, it's it's just I know this company a little bit from from um, uh, work-related uh, activities, and um, they, they're called Babylon Health. But uh, so do look them up. Um, okay. And don't uh, sign up to their service unless you want your <laughs> your your doctor's appointments uh, remotely shared to other users. Right. Um, and that company was breached, or no? It's, it's basically it sounds like a, 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 more of a um, a, cluster, a cluster, a yes. factor. Yes, use that, that is the technical term. <laughs> to, to use the technical term now. Yes. Um, yes. Interesting name that reminds me a little bit of something called Babylon Five, which I think was a TV series uh, way yes. back. Yes, I remember this. Um, but they mm. apparently they they didn't encounter breaches at least on the episodes that I watched, which weren't many to be honest. Um, mm. So how well, we, could, we, we, yeah. we could rant about um, uh, uh, DevOps and, and the, all the agile d development that happens these days? But yeah, but at, at some cost, right? But we won't. So that's okay. Uh, just out of curiosity, um, how was this leak published? It's on the BBC. The British Broadcasting Corporation. Okay, so it must be true. <laughs> well, I'm going it took, it, <laughs> Martin, this took a second too long. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, for those of you um, uh, who don't know the BBC, the BBC is a monopoly, I think it's called. Mm -hmm. In Great Britain, basically uh, covering news and other items, uh, certain, what's what I'm looking for, governments have used it as their um, disposal um, to, with varying levels of success, I might add. And also state, well, state funded. Uh yeah. Yes, it's state in, in the UK ex exactly. TV it's it's state funded. Yeah, some yeah, people yeah. like this, some people do not. For example, there's a certain Mr. Johnson, I think, uh, apparently at the moment, who is somewhat opposed to the idea of continuing the BBC service as such. And never mind, given the fact that the BBC is a, is a bit of a tradition in the, in the UK. Hmm. No, um, it's, it's, but yeah, uh, 
I mean, you can say the same about the NHS and the National Reel and all these kind of things, right? Where do you, where do you go with privatisation or not with all these companies? So, um, there is something to be said for for but uh, state funding of certain functions, but then it also, as you can see, become a monopoly, right? So, um, in that respect, and. So do you think that actually Magus Thatcher diversion from communism because that mm. was the prevailing um, um, government form, mm -hmm. uh, go government government type, right? Uh, before Maggie took that wrong turn, was it was was a turn in the right direction or not for the country in general? It um, yeah, I, the the idea is 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 great, but in practice it was very. It wasn't a, a very bad idea, right? <laughs> Pri Privatization, uh, okay. Yes, yes. I see. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the, the idea is obviously, you know, if you have privatization, then you have competition, and you get the best service again, blah blah blah, and the best price. But you know, with a with a real service, that doesn't work <laughs> all that well. Funny, <laughs> funny enough, if you bring up the real service, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I can. But, but by the way, I can recall standing in front of science uh, about a year ago in the in Great Britain, <laughs> promising me to to get uh, that I get my money back if the train is fifteen minutes late. It's an hour, isn't it? Um, I thought it was 15 minutes. No, 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 no. no it's an hour. Uh, 15 okay. minutes, you get all your money back all the time. <laughs> you may as well not run at all. <laughs> yeah, but then I can uh, I can also recall being stuck in some in some uh, in some train station in the middle of nowhere, and that was quite mm -hmm. late. And all the uh, and all the trains that were supposed to go for the remainder of the day, which was I think an hour or something, mm -hmm. uh, showed cancelled. Um, that wasn't impressive because I had to make my way back using alternative means of transport, which turned out to be quite expensive. But that's an, uh, but that's another um, story, probably. Okay. Um, okay. So let's bring on our guest. It's this time. It's you want to introduce them? Yeah. So them. Him. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so let's say, is there someone that I missed? <laughs> No, him. Um, okay. Do you want to introduce right. him? Yes, so, <laughs> so this week's guest is um, uh, esteemed Postgres uh, project coordinator Bruce Momjan, um, doing this for the PostgreSQL uh, database for ooh, over 25 years, I think. Um, uh, I've worked with Bruce a, a fair bit, and uh, yeah, he's a great speaker, ah. very passionate about open source. Um, Excellent. Um, Tonight we have a special guest. Um, by the name of Bruce Mombian, um, community coordinator. Of course, I get this wrong, but Bruce, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, so I'm Bruce Mombian. I live in Philadelphia. I've been working with Postgres for 24 years. Uh, I've been working in open source probably five or six years more than that. Um, I enjoy what I do. I work for Enterprise DB. I used to travel a lot, but not, not so much now. Uh, but I do a lot, of, I do a lot of conferences. Now I'm doing conferences online. Uh, I'm one of the Postgres core team members responsible for sort of, you know, just managing the project and the team and uh, encouraging new developers. Uh, it's a lot of fun. So okay. for those, that's great. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to tag onto that if that's okay. Yeah. Um, Go ahead, Martin. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to ask. I mean, with your long and standing open source uh, experience, is is there one tip you would like to give uh, any budding open source developers out? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, one of the one of the fundamental things that I've uh, that I remember t telling people, and you know, I haven't said it in so long because it actually must have sunk in, um, that as open source developers. We are not creating software to create software. Okay. Yeah. We are creating software for people to use. And what I had a problem with in the early years were people in the Postgres project were so focused on solving problems and on creating elegant solutions that they didn't have a vision or a focus on the user experience and the user benefit that was part of what they were doing. So I would basically say, you know, we could just sit around and write software ourselves for ourselves forever, right? Yep. But this project is much more than that. This project is about providing a service and a utility to the IT professionals around the world that gives them new capabilities and new vision and new open source capabilities 
that did not exist before. So that was probably my biggest thing was getting out of the sort of we're writing it for hobbyists, we're writing it for ourselves. And that's okay, but we have to also realize that we always have to have a connection to our community. We always have to understand what are we doing that's what if we're working on project on, on feature X, how is that going to benefit our community? Right? Because a lot of times as engineers, we're so focused on our own needs and our own, let's solve this problem, let's fix this problem, let's figure out how to make this work. That I we guess that's, that's a big part of your role, right, as a, as a coordinator for this project, to, uh, to Bruce, be that voice. Yeah, sorry, Bruce, yeah. Before, before we go in further, maybe uh, maybe there are still about five to ten people on this planet who do not know what Postgres is. Maybe you could, for the benefit of these few people, just shortly give an overview <laughs> Of what this project is all about. Yeah, you know, in fact, there's a lot more to it than you would guess. So Postgres started in 1986 uh, in the University of California, Berkeley, by Michael Stonebreaker as being the next generation of relational relational system. That's why it's Postgres or Postingress at that point. Uh, And for the first 10 years, it was really a research project funded by the US, U.S. Department of Defense, uh, similar to the way Unix was, uh, BSD, uh, Unix was, was supported by the Department of Defense. Um, in 1996, Postgres had really left the university. It had been no longer being developed, um, you know, full time. And I and a group of other people sort of took over the code from the, the few people at Berkeley who were still working on it and brought it to internet development. And we've been doing that for the past 24 years. The early years were obviously a lot of bug fixing, uh, adding enterprise features and so forth. Um, but what you have now is a real world class database that probably does more than Oracle does from a, from a developer's perspective, probably does a little less than Oracle does from an administrative perspective, uh, but is really a first class alternative to the, the proprietary databases just as Linux took over the HPUXs and Solaris's. Uh, and AIXs of the world 10 years ago. And, you know, they're proprietary companies, some of them, like Fujitsu or NTT. And, you know, we're like, that's okay because we're not dependent on you if you go away, like but somebody they, else. They, they, will, they contribute to the open source code as well. Oh, yeah, that's, they contribute a lot. And, and you kind of, it's the same thing. Like you use the proprietary stuff to, to forward your agenda, but when, when things turn badly, you have to have a clear exit strategy. Um, and that's why we, we host our own website. We host our own email infrastructure. We don't really rely on anything external because we're scared of that. But, but that's infrastructure. It's hard to change. Something like a podcast, eh, you know, if you switch from Zoom to Google to Zoom, uh, you know, Skype, it's not really going to affect as long as your hosting platform is is stable, right? So that's another problem. So you can move around between different ones as long as they're all they're well, all. I think stable. we definitely need an alternative. <laughs> that's for sure. But um, I mean, for, okay. from, from the from the project side, um, uh, this is uh, you know, it's, it's unlikely that Postgres is ever going to be you know taken over like a uh, one of those other open source projects by any one company, right? This is the way it's been organized and. I yeah, think- we've, we've always been really paranoid about that. Um, I think because, you know, the MySQL situation was just so mm. terrible. I mean, you knew they were just riding that open source distribution channel with no open source community, with very little open source development, you know, and you knew they were just kind of riding that similar, I guess, to the way BitLocker did. They just read, they wrote open sources until the, you know, until the big payday. And you see that over and over again in so many open source projects um, that when we, you know, when we sort of set Postgres up, we're like, okay, people are really in this for the technology. They're not really in it for the paycheck. There isn't any real one single commercial entity that controls it. The core team can't be, have more than a majority, you know, can't have a majority of, of people from any one company. And, you know, I could reel off 10 different companies in all geos that, support Postgres. I remember one case, the early company, Great Bridge, who, you know, we've always been aware that, that there are certain companies like MySQL who 
who were really using open source as a vehicle to distribute their software. Okay. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, sort of me putting on a jacket that says I'm on it with a certain team and just running out onto the field. I'm not a football player, but I look like one maybe, right? So, um, you know, there have been a lot of companies that did that, BitLocker being one of them, uh, you know, MySQL. There's a, and there's a ton of them active now. Mongo, another big one, um, who's really out there to say, hey, we're open source and there's, you know, there's, there's no lock-in or whatever that means. Um, and, you know, you should use us. Uh, but, you know, underlying that, all of the product decisions, all the development, uh, all the licensing uh, is really run by a single company, and Postgres has, has known that that's been around for a long time. Hmm. And it's sort of structured ourselves in a way that the companies know that they need us, we don't need them. If the companies go away, Postgres will be fine. If Postgres goes away, those companies are dead, right? I mean, and that's all the companies really understand that dependence. Um, and anyone who doesn't understand it, they kind of don't last very long. So, uh, you know, it's, it's nice. They can take the software if they want and just go and do whatever they want to do with it. Uh, Greenplum did that for many years. Now they're trying to come back in the community. Uh, you know, uh, there's another one, um, you know, uh, you know, we, you've got Aurora now, which is a fork of Postgres, which, you know, and Enterprise DB has a fork. So there's a lot of companies kind of – You're not telling me that Amazon have come back to, to share this code with you. No, well, Amazon <laughs> Amazon did um, – they did that uh, – what was that called? The They had a database based on Postgres 8 uh, or 8.1. Um, I, I can't remember the name off the top of my head. But anyway, and that one sort of is still around. And then they took Postgres, they put, put, put in RDS, which mm-hmm. it didn't modify Postgres very much. And then they, they have an Aurora product that also uses the Postgres code. So if some company wants to just go and run with the code, they're able to do that. If some company wants to work with the community and do sort of co-development, which is the majority of companies obviously were there to do that. But they, the way the core team structured, the way the community structured, um, they're not the focus. They don't control the sales channels. They don't control the product, the features, you know, what gets into the code. That's all really determined by this whole group of, of community people. Yeah, great. I mean, you, you did, we've done this podcast for such a long time, right? And, um, I don't think we touched on the, how you got involved with the projects to start with, but, um, is it something that you think you'll be doing for, uh, uh, a, a while longer, or have you looked at any other? Are there any other open source projects out there that interest you, or are of the same maturity? Do you think? Yeah, you know, I'm in a, I, I'm in a really, I realize it's almost a blessed sort of choice years ago, but uh, I've always been interested in SQL databases, really from, I guess, 1989 when I started using them. I always found them interesting, and I tried writing my own SQL database a couple times uh, before Postgres. Uh, but I realized as I started coding it that the the project was just way, way too complicated for me. Um, but the cool thing about the database for me is, um, I, I don't know, I just like, I just find it interesting. I'm not sure there's another place I would go. Um, you know, fortunately, there's a whole bunch of cases, you know, 24 years, there's a whole bunch of places I could have gotten off, right? Yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. Um, you know, this is not going where I want it to go. I find this other thing I'm interested in. Um, but fortunately, you know, I stuck with it just because I kind of still find it interesting. Um, we've always tried to have a community that, uh, that, that is a place you want to be, uh, not a hostile place, but a place that is, um, is sort of affirming and welcoming and a friendly place. So I think that's a lot of our value is, you know, if I look at a conference from 2006, which was our first conference in Toronto, mm-hmm. you know, 80, 90% of those people are still with us. You know, it's 13 years. They're still with us. Um, because I think Postgres does provide a platform and an environment that's pretty rare in, in development in general, uh, where you have these really complicated problems, um, you have good funding, you have good uh, need for the software within a lot of industries, and at the same time, uh, it's a place to belong. It's a place to to provide value to the to the world. It's a place to 
um, solve interesting problems, deal with interesting challenges, grow as a developer. Uh, and I think all those kind of combine together to make it kind of a, a great place to be. And I think that's how we've been able to retain so many people. And because the software is so complicated, we really need to retain them because you, it takes a couple of years before you're even really yeah. up to the point where you can add a major feature to the database. Um, taking a little step back here, um, Bruce, uh, when I did a little bit of research about Postgres, which, by the way, runs on the majority of my at least ARM cores doing various things, I noticed that you were heading for your own license called Postgres License. Maybe you can share a little bit about the decision behind this and why you didn't go for a more common license in terms of MIT, BSD3 clause, maybe even GNU, and maybe you can also elaborate on the context of this in an open source initiative perspective. Sure. So we, you know, we were BSD. We when we started the project in '96, we thought we were BSD licensed, right? I mean, we okay. came from Berkeley. It looked like the BSD license. It's in terms of its content, right, uh, and what it covered. So we, for year decades, like we would just say we're we're BSD licensed. A website would say that. Anyone who would ask us, we would say it, and that meant a whole bunch of things, such as you can create proprietary products with it. There's no, you know, there's no sort of copyleft requirement. You can, you know, you can do whatever you want with it. It'll always be available. Um, what? <laughs> What became clear about 10 years ago was that we are not BSD licensed, that, that although the content is virtually the same as the BSD Unix license, which, of course, came out of the same university, the same funding structure, the wording is slightly different. And we don't feel we have the right to change that because the license had been done back in 86. We don't – we're – one of the reasons Postgres is so unusual is that we, everyone who's active now really didn't get involved till 96 or later. So we sort of were given this complete database in a way. So nobody really wrote it from scratch, at least it's currently active. Um, so we don't, we're kind of looking back at the 10 years before we started and we're saying, well, that's what they did. We don't, we can't change that. So what we ended up doing was basically going to the, oh, you know, open source um, OSI and getting our license approved as valid. Now, did we have to do it? I don't know. I mean, it looked like a BSC license, but lawyers basically said, yeah, you kind of have to do it because there's this one or two words that are slightly different. Um, so we effectively, we are BSD licensed or okay. MIT licensed, but there is this wording difference that requires us to have a separate license. I guess we could have made a whole big thing and said, we're just going to change the wording on the license, but we still would have had to carry the old wording. And, and like, eh, yeah. it's kind of weird. And you never considered kind of to really enforce the, the open source spirit to go for a more, uh, what's what I'm looking for, um, confined license like the GPL or something. No. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that, but what the GPL GPL has really um, to us the GPL is a pessimistic license. It assumes that the software will be overtaken by some other entity, right? And that that other entity will effectively close off the code and do all the development and then sort of starve the open source project. Now, I'm sure there are open source projects that that has happened to. Uh, but the, from the Postgres case, we look at it as we, we sort of, I would say, approach the project, the licensing in a confident way, saying if you want to take the code and create a fork of Postgres, which dozens of companies have done, go ahead. You're not harming us. Our community is, is strong enough to take that. Um, and we don't feel that that's really working against us. On the positive side, there's a lot of companies that have created proprietary versions of Postgres, including my own employer, EnterpriseDB, okay, 
but they still support open source Postgres and a good portion of their business is open source Postgres, right? I think if we had had a BSD uh, GPL style license, they would have been too scared off to get involved with Postgres. So in a way, it's sort of like if you're dating somebody and you say, listen, before we get out, go out, you got to do ABC. Well, the person's not going to go out with you, right? Because you're giving them all these preconditions. Um, with Postgres, we kind of come and say, here's the license, do whatever you want. If you want to work at the community, great. If you don't want to, that's fine. Uh, Green Plum's a great example. Took the light, took the code, developed yeah. a closed door version for a long period of time, and then probably five years ago came back and said, you know, Postgres has moved so far forward that our code based on an old version of Postgres is really not as viable. We want to get our code up to the version of Postgres that's currently being shipped, and we want to effectively start open, we want to open source our project. So that's a great example where a single company really couldn't keep up with Postgres. Um, and decided, you know, we're better off working with the community than trying to fork and run. Uh, and Enterprise TV does the same thing. They, they work with the community. They don't fork and run, you know, the way from it. So, Mr. Foreman, if you're listening, this, uh, that's another deviation from the true spirit of communism. Um, some people may consider this to be a hampering innovation, but then I can see both sides of the coin. Martin, over to you. Yeah, so, so I mean, uh, obviously we have to mention uh, the the rise of NoSQL, and uh, you you already mentioned MongoDB earlier. But um, having grown up with with SQL database myself, I can see uh, you know both sides of the coin. But um, is there any? I mean, is Postgres looking to do more in that area? I mean, there are obviously some uh, extra um, uh, cases that you already can, you know, you can do your JSON and things like that. But, um, are we still thinking as, as a project being that all encompassing database and, and not, uh, you know, whereas those niche or well, niche specialized NoSQL databases are very much a, um, uh, a one, one sided show. Uh, so how do you, how do you see that going forwards for Postgres? Because, I mean, obviously there is a lot of, um, uptake of the likes of the MongoDBs, etc., of these worlds, right? Yeah. So, <clears throat> again, it's, it's, um, it's a question of how you look at the, you know, your competitive landscape, right? Do you see them as opportunities or threats, right? Or are they showing new workloads that, you know, you can, you can subsume or are they something that, you know, you have to sort of fight against? One of the interesting things about the way, the reason Postgres was developed in 86, 1986 was, because they, even at that time, when you were talking, what, how many years ago, uh, 30-some years ago, uh, we're talking about um, a case where even then it was clear that the relational model, as good as it was, was, was not able to handle every workload, right? Mm -hmm. Couldn't handle things like GIS or geometry points. Couldn't handle, obviously, things like full-text searches we've had and yeah. GIS and JSON and a whole bunch of other stuff. I even have a talk on my website that talks about non-relational Postgres. But the point is that we're continuing – because we have – because Postgres was designed as extendable mm -hmm. back in 86, it makes it very easy for us to effectively improve Postgres – in a way that doesn't have to sort of rip out the relational part. You're able to sort of move in new index types, new data types, new languages, uh, and so forth without having to sort of throw away the relational parts of the system. Uh, at the time when I started in 80, in 96, that whole extendable object relational part was a huge headache for us. Uh, seemed like a waste of time, uh, made the system much more complicated. But now in 2000, when we're looking at the system, that extendability has allowed us to effectively subsume so many workloads that in a lot of cases we do the NoSQL workloads better than the NoSQL systems do. Even with the transaction handling, even with the, the durability and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of amazing that you're taking a system wasn't designed for, for a lot of the things it does today, but was designed as more of a data platform. 
And I think as people, as, as we start to digitize things we never digitized before, right? You know, your phone has so much need for, uh, data storage, right? Um, you know, there's so much analytics going on, Internet of Things analytics, data analytics that people never did before. What's great is that Postgres is able to sort of morph itself, not break itself, but morph itself into these new workloads in a really seamless way that you would think was impossible for a relational system that was written so many years ago. Um, but that's the cool thing, and I think that's just going to continue. Um, if you're, you know, if you're just the database that handles workloads from the 1990s, yeah, you're yeah, not yeah. going to be, yeah, that's just not the place to be. Well, I, I, I mean, you've, you've seen the rise of the the, the, the various different uh, models like time series and graph over the time. Are, are people actively working on, on extensions for that in, in Postgres as well? Today? Yeah, we do have, um, in, in Postgres 11 uh, and 12, we added something called a storage manager. So as you know, we have, you know, key value store, we have JSON, we have JSON, full text search, stuff like that, document store. Yep. Um, but there are now people working on different storage systems for columnar, which is something you can't do as efficiently in Postgres than you can mm-hmm. in, in a natural columnar database. I know somebody's probably working on a, on a, um, on a graph database option. I know there are people who are working on AI, uh, machine learning stuff. There's a whole bunch of work going on um, that's actually been completed a couple of years ago to allow Postgres to operate as a full data warehouse. Uh, so you don't have to dump your yeah. relational data out into another system. Um, is, is, keep it is some, some, some of that work from Greenplum going back into Postgres? Well? Actually, I don't think we've had anything. I can't no. even remember a patch from Greenplum. It's mostly... Hmm. It's mostly around, uh, Brin indexing and, uh, yeah, Brin indexing, window functions came out of Japan, Brin index came out of second quadrant of Chile, um, uh, we had, uh, cube and roll up that came out of England, um, uh, common table expressions that also came out of Japan, uh, so it's just a lot of, what's really amazing about Postgres is because we have a distributed team, we're able to work in like five or six directions at the same time. When you look at a Postgres release that we major release every year, these releases have like improvements in usability, improvements in scaling, improvements in performance, data warehousing, uh, you know, application stuff, tooling improvements, backup improvements. So administrative. So that's the great stuff is you have different groups working on a whole bunch of different security, working on different stuff independently. And they all kind of come together to apply their patches to a common code base. So instead of having to manage these teams and sort of get them all to march in one direction, they all march in whatever direction they want. They have to do it in a way the community approves. Uh, but it does allow you to kind of do five things at once. It's almost impossible for companies to do that. But open source seems to be able to do it pretty well. Um, which is the very nature of open source, Bruce, I reckon. Going back to the NoSQL discussion, uh, I can recall a project called ToroDB, which actually bridged that gap in the document database space. Given the fact that this project, at least with regards to the GitHub commit, seems to be pretty dormant, do you know what the true story behind this is? Oh, sure, yeah. I know Alvaro Hernandez for many years. You do, uh, okay. Yeah, he's out of, out of Madrid. Um, in fact, he's been to the house a couple of times, and he had a great conference in Ibiza last year, so uh, really great guy. He's a, you know he's more of a Java person and obviously had seen a need to create this Java layer on top of Postgres that allowed Postgres to speak the Mongo protocol and then sort of split apart the Mongo document into pieces which were then uh, stored in Postgres. But, you know, the problem you have with any kind of fork of Postgres or sort of offshoot that isn't sort of in the main tree is you've really got to have a lot of momentum behind it because Postgres is moving so quickly and sort of closing up a bunch of, uh, problems or, or it's expanding so quickly that you have to like have this sort of really amazing solution to kind of distinguish yourself, uh, in that, in that market. I, I'm guessing that it worked really well. I mean, I know him. I'm sure it was really well engineered. Um, but you, here's, here's the thing. People, 
and and I I may I'm giving a I'm even giving a talk about this in a couple of weeks, but but one of the crazy things that's happened over the years is when Postgres started, um, you know, it was a nothing, right? It was like what's Postgres, right? And oh, I'm just gonna if it's something I don't data I don't care about or I have no money, okay, maybe I'll use it. But if I if it's data I care about or I have money, I'm not gonna use it, right? Um, what you have in 2000 now are people saying, you know, I now have more confidence in Postgres than I do in Oracle or Microsoft. Uh, in terms of longevity, in terms of ability to solve the problem, in terms of fitness for purpose, right? And that's it's, a different it's, environment. It's quality of code as well, right? Because right, quality of code, those, those right. reliability are across it, the yeah. board, right? Yeah. So, so the issue now is you have, and you're sort of like, okay, now people are saying, not you know, instead of Postgres being below the typical proprietary relational database, in a lot of ways is above it. Right. So for somebody else to come in with another project, even even Greenplum, which is backed by Pivotal, it's a huge thing. But at the same time, people are like, yeah, I like Greenplum, but this Postgres thing seem is not is more than a data warehouse. Right. And maybe I'd like that better. People don't want a whole bunch of different databases in their data center. And I don't blame them because you got to you got to manage it. You got to back it up. You got to make sure it's reliable. Whole bunch of administrative problems that are challenges, tasks you have when you bring in a new database. So I think the problem with TorahDB was not that it wasn't good, but it had to solve a big enough problem to get in the door against a, com a, a community Postgres that already had a very high reputation, right? And that's the problem. How do you do that? Sometimes you can do it with an extension. So you can create an extension to Postgres. That That's what... Um, Citus did, which was purchased by Microsoft two years ago or so. Um, so Citus was an extension that did data warehousing, and they it was a little easier, I think, for them to to get adoption because you were still using Postgres. You were using Postgres plus this extension. I think with Toro, I think maybe it was like a layer on top, so you had a layer on top of Postgres, um, but it's just very hard. Postgres is now so big that it's really hard to get visibility um in that in that market. I mean, let's look at it. For example, how many other relational open source databases are there today? Like there's Maria and Ma, and there's Maria and MySQL, which are kind of it. There used to be Firebird, there used to be Interbase, which was being Firebird. There used to be a whole bunch of other ones. Um uh, but what's happened over the years is Postgres has become so big that anybody who's doing open source relational database development Pretty much is Postgres. Like, that's pretty much it. Right? So, yeah. as you get bigger and bigger, one, the problem is you, create, you cast a bigger shadow and it's harder for other projects to get mindshare and to get, you know, sort of interest from customers. And I think that's the biggest problem because people just don't want another database, another solution unless it solves a really critical problem. And I guess, Maybe not enough people had the problem it solved. I, I'm not, I'm not a Java guy. I don't know Mongo very well, so I'm not the guy who to guess that. But I know that that is the typical challenge that anyone has when you're looking at Postgres that it's so big and so well known and has such a reputation. Anything added to that is going to have a challenge. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. I mean, I, I know, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a great fan of Postgres and, um, but it, it and it's been moving, move, moving fast. <laughs> so, Just wondering. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, as, as uh, coming Legacy, from, right? <laughs> coming Sorry. from a, uh, a, a proprietary Oracle background and the first time being introduced to Postgres, was like, wow, this stuff can do everything and it does it really well. <laughs> okay. Anyway, but, um, uh, I think one thing that kind of, what I've seen maybe lagging behind a bit is, is the sharding story. Has that been developed a little bit more? Oh, that is so true. I mean, that's one of those, Sorry. As, I, as I said before, that's one of those where I'm going to get yeah. up and just like, yeah. listen, we're not doing what we should do. So the sharding story is really interesting. It's the kind of, so the, the narrative behind the sharding story and and this is a weird example, is that when somebody is choosing a database, they want to know that it will scale to multiple machines. Mm -hmm. That's just like a like a checkbox now, right? So even if you're a small company, you're going to be the next Google, right? <laughs> or the next Zoom or the next whatever, right? Yeah. So 
I don't care what database I choose. I gotta choose something that can that can scale to multiple servers. And even though you know a lot of large, large, large companies are running Postgres without that sharding and, and running it very well for global workloads. You know, credit card companies running Postgres, right? You can imagine how much mm-hmm. transactions they do on single machines, big machines, but single machines. Um, what what happens is that you it's sort of this checkbox that's required. The problem, though, is that once people realize what Postgres can do on a single machine, they realize that running it on multiple machines is kind of like a headache. Like, if I can run it on a single machine, why would I want to shard my data, make it more harder to manage, make it harder to back up? Like, I don't, I don't need to do that. Databases naturally want to do vertical scaling. Horizontal scaling can work. NoSQL, you know, probably, you know, really staked out its whole reason for being on the horizontal scaling case. Yep. But when you look at what most people use NoSQL for, even though it that's really what it was done, most people are running it on a single server, right? They want the option of running on a multiple service, but a lot of times if they're running two or three servers, it's just for redundancy. It's not for load balancing, right? So the point is there's this disconnect between what people want in sharding potentially and what people actually are going to put in production. So as much as I like sharding and continue to push it, I have not been able to get enough community interest around it to get all the pieces I think are necessary to get it done. I've been working on it for three years. I've got presentation on a website. It's a connection. It's a combination of, of partitioning, which we have now. Mm-hmm. It's a combination of foreign data wrappers with pushdown, which we have now. Um, it's a combination of, uh, <clears throat> of of parallelism, which we have now, uh, but there are some missing parallelism pieces. There are some missing uh, transaction management pieces. There's some missing snapshot distribution pieces uh, that we need to basically get a full production, either as a data warehouse or as an OLTP uh, cluster solution. So the good news is somebody emailed me this week. They want to create uh, HIGO out of China, wants to create sort of a working group around this, uh, to sort of push sharding forward. I think we have five or ten companies now interested in this. So we're going to have meetings. Right. Uh, we haven't had anything yet, but just this week, it looks like we now have more push push on this. Um, I think it's almost there. I don't think there's that much more work to do. We have companies in China, Japan, <coughs> Russia, uh, United States, uh, all interested in this. So I'm hopeful we can get an answer. But it's the disconnect between what people want initially and what they actually need today that I think has slowed down that project. Right. No, that's, that's an interesting perspective because it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of the the biggest, as, as you know, uh, selling points of music, all right. But, um, just, uh, sorry, well, actually, did you want to... Go back to what I said before. Yeah. One of the great things about sharding is it can be done in a in a holistic manner. It doesn't have to be a bolted on, let's add 150,000 lines of code to make it happen. You're basically just improving foreign data wrappers. You're improving, right. uh, pair yep. transactions. You're improving, char, uh, uh, you know, the, the partitioning code. And all of a sudden you get sharding by just expanding out in little places. And I think that's another example of how Postgres sort of grows organically to handle these new workloads. Okay, Bruce, um, I think we have to wrap this up in the interest of time. Um, there's a certain thing that we do with all our guests called POX. It's the pick of the week in terms of something that you've come across recently, as it doesn't have to be the week, <clears throat> but rather that something, something that interests you, something that you care to remember. And, of course, there's also anti-POX, which probably resorts to Oracle, MySQL, uh, SQL Server, or something like this. I'm yeah. just guessing. <laughs> Sorry, take your take, take your take your pick. Um, so you're in, you're interested in something interesting I've seen recently? Yeah, something that that stuck your um, uh, you know, it's something that's interesting to you, right, in, in the in the news. Um. Yeah, I think I think the big thing for me is trying to understand. Uh, you know, I've worked remotely since 94 or so, um, but trying to understand what the new world is going to look like going forward in terms of travel, in terms of online conferences, online meetings, 
um, how much of our world going forward is going to be more virtual, more uh, sort of electronic. One of the interesting things is I'm now talking to people on the other side of the country much more regularly now than I did you know, before. Yeah. Because now somebody, <laughs> somebody's doing a church event in California and I'm attending it, you know, because we're all on Zoom and we're doing that. Um, tonight I have an event for, with somebody in New York who's doing a, a Bible study right out of New York. And normally I would never have gone to New York for that. But now it's online. So I just as open source, I think, has brought together so many people from do, so many different countries. This, um, you know, this sort of uh, quarantine thing is is sort of allowing us to connect virtually to people who are pretty far away. Um, so we're creating our own virtual communities in a way, in a way that we hadn't before. It'd be interesting how much of that sticks around and how much of it goes back to the way we did things before. That's kind of where I'm thinking yeah. is interesting. Well, I mean, okay. you, you, you like to travel, right? So, so which one I do you prefer? <laughs> I, I do. I, you know, the weirdest thing for me is I'm now in the same bed every night, which, <laughs> which just, I, it took me about six weeks to kind of hit me as I'm in bed. I'm thinking, I've been here every night for like weeks. Uh, and because I'm always, I'm always, you know, home long enough and, you know, for a couple of weeks, but, you know, the, time, the clock's always ticking to the next trip and now it's not. Uh, so I'm able to do a lot more research. I'm able to work on a lot more bigger projects. Um, and of course I'm not spending a lot of time kind of flying all over the place. I miss it. I did have a very busy travel schedule at the end of 2019 and 2020. So, uh, I was definitely ready for a break and I'm enjoying it. Uh, but I do think things are going to, you know, start warming up, uh, in the next couple of months. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, uh, do you have anything on, on the, uh, reverse side that you completely, uh, struck you for a negative reason apart from the obvious? <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty positive guy. I don't think I saw anything. I don't think I've seen a whole lot of negative now. All right. No, that's, that's, that, 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 that does as well. That's, that's fine. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, as Chris said, we, we've got to kind of wrap this up. Uh, thank you very, very much. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a great Postfest fan and I'm sure Chris will be as well after this, <laughs> after the <laughs> interview. So, uh, so once again, thank you for this. Um, and uh, yeah, keep keep up the good work with Postgres. I would say it's. Uh... Thank you so much. All right, thank you again, and uh, speak to you again soon. Sure. Take care. Martin, that was an excellent interview. Although it was a great he, interview. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. Although yes, um, he's a bit of a talker, isn't he? Which I which I like, by the way. Don't get me wrong. Yes, uh, he's, he's passionate, right? And uh, uh, after spending that many years on an open source project, still having that drive, it's great. Hmm. Okay, um, so all that remains to be done is, of course, the lovely feedback that we got. Uh-huh. And, of course, yes, um, Luna Yernberg, or should I say Martin Yernberg? Not too sure, Jern, because Jern, Jern, yeah, Jern, they're, they're sharing the same email address, so I'm not too sure who, if, what, what, of the, um, what of the two names is alias or not. So okay. uh, Luna slash Martin wrote in to say that... Um, uh, let me read this out. Hello, listen to the latest episode now. Missed they were released, but saw it when scrolling by the HBR feed over the weekend. Yes, Luna slash Martin, thank you very much for the, for the feedback. You're bringing up a very important point. We are hosted on Hacker Public Radio. So wherever you get your podcast from, we now have our own RSS feed on Hacker Public Radio. We will continue to use Hacker Public Radio for the time being. And if we should decide to move elsewhere, you'll be um, the first to know in terms of hearing it here first. And then Luna wrote a second mail saying that the Catalina thing was fixed later in May. And, um, of course, that was um, a reference to Audacity 2.4.1. And, of course, the workaround that um, Catalina and its security measures, as in the latest installment of the OSX uh, operating system, um, has a certain limitation when it comes down to apps accessing the hardware camera and and um, the microphone and there's a workaround that we kind of discussed and apparently the Audacity team fixed this in 241. I um, haven't checked this out on Mac so we'll do this uh, shortly and of course Luna slash um, Martin is absolutely right. Audacity is 20 years now. 
because this is basically what she or he wrote that now two decades have gone by with this lovely tool that of course we also use for producing this podcast um, has been in existence. Any closing remarks, Martin? Before we um, uh, the, um, close the, off uh, the episode. The, the, the Claudia response to the response to the response is a great episode. So do, do listen, uh, listeners. If you're so inclined, Claudia, yes, and we are looking for a review of a re of the review yes. of the review. <laughs> if you want to do one, doesn't have to be a full episode on HPR. You can write to us. The of course the email address is feedback at Martin Linux. Shall we do in-laws today? In-laws, <laughs> e .eu. Yes, excellent. And of course, the web, our website is also www.linuxinlaws.eu. No dash, just one word. And looking forward to having you Much with the next episode. Yes, Martin, take care. Thank you. Yes. This episode of Linux In-Laws is proudly sponsored by Oracle. Disappointed with too fast database access, when all you really need is a slow backend allowing the user to have more time to ponder about buying decisions for your e-commerce site, becoming more and more tired with getting the same precise result sets, never mind how ambiguous the query really is? Fret not, Oracle has you covered. Introducing Real Oracle, the first database with such low performance your customers will love the time they will have pondering your beautiful e-commerce site while waiting for the shopping cart confirmation. Never mind the huge set of articles ranging from tulips to potatoes to sex toys to choose from when all they are searching for is a simple bulb. Real Oracle by Oracle. You know you want it. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license, type attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for the song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. Hello. Hi. Hey. Okay, that's painful again. I don't know what this big blue marble is, but if I see it one more time, I'm going to avoid <laughs> it and run the other direction. Oh. I think we lost him. I think, yeah. He's on his phone. Oh, dear. It's a shame, isn't it? He was yep, going reasonably. Yeah. Last introduction to the project. Let's keep on rolling and let's talk about the Yeah, let's just... <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's interesting, isn't it? Oh, it's, fuck uh, it, Verizon! If you're listening, yeah. this is crap. I, I find it a little bit uh, weird that is that not many more people have this issue, right? But anyway, let's not go there now. It's coming back now. Yep. And no, Verizon, I won't edit this out. Um, Point if. If if you're listening, T-Mobile does does a way better job than you are. Never mind whether I used to work for you or not. Of course, we do still accept sponsorships, but that's <laughs> probably another issue. <laughs> no Verizon, but you can't buy your way into this. No worries. Um, anyway, um, okay. Bruce isn't Bruce joining is now. Yes. yes. Maybe. <clears throat> maybe I. Maybe we can maybe. put this into the. Outtakes or something. Anyway.
Um, yes. Uh, He's still struggling, uh, isn't he? Yeah, too yeah. bad. Mm. Um. Okay. Yeah. Martin is recording. recording. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So yeah. So we were bitching about big blue button and then some database later on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know where I actually cut out or what okay. I was saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were talking about the the MySQL go to market and the marketing front that Oracle used subsequently, if I understood you correctly. But then. Or, or you broke up later on, so maybe you care to repeat slash elaborate? Sure, yeah, so... Okay, that was an excellent interview, I think. Yeah. Um, but he's a bit of a talker, isn't he? Oh, oh I thought you said cut. Uh, we can you still can edit the sound. Recording. What are we doing? No, are we still no, recording? No. Yes, we are. <laughs> okay, yes, I'm still recording. Was, you said cut, so I was just about to... Yeah, cut is actually after... Oh, jeez, we have to... We have to... We, uh, this has to be... Uh, this has to be edited. Oh, okay, fair enough. No, we are after the interview, Martin. Um, okay, I know we're and, after the interview. And yes. let's roll again. It was a couple of days ago. <laughs> yes. Cut and roll. <laughs> You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.